Welcome to The Postscript. I'm Pastor Brandon Briscoe, and this is Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series devoted to getting to know pastors and professors from the Living Faith Fellowship, having conversations with them about theology, about their Bible study, about their testimony and ministry, and we hope that it's an encouragement for you. Each week when we come together, we're hoping to produce content that's going to lift you up and edify you and strengthen you and, and maybe even make you intrigued by Living Faith Bible Institute. And so we want to invite you uh, to join us in our conversation this week with Pastor Greg Axe. Pastor Greg Axe, good to yes, see you, man. Good to be here. Last time we were together, uh, we were having a conversation about uh, the third and fourth century, specifically about who is Constantine, right. uh, what was his influence on the church mm-hmm. uh, as a Roman emperor, what was his influence. And we also got into the conversation about the councils that began to be produced starting in the third century, starting with the Council of Nicaea, and then rolling out really over the next maybe eight to nine centuries that follow. Yes. uh, These major moments in church history where people are producing statements that are intended to to represent uh, a singular theological position. Mm -hmm. Uh, We talked about the good and the bad that came with that. Now, all of this conversation, the third and fourth century, this is about uh, the age of Pergamos. Yes. We refer to it as the age of Pergamos as defined in Revelation. Could you explain that just a little bit to us? Well, in Revelation chapter two and three, you have a survey of church history from looking back on it. Um, and without going long detail, John wrote the book of Revelation um, from the vantage point of the second coming of Christ, and God told him, write it in three parts, what you have seen, what is, and what is to come. Mm-hmm. And the present tense portion is the tribulation second coming. The past tense portion would be the the age of the church, and it, th- those were uh, seven different churches mentioned in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 in sequence, and they line up with a general um, spirit of the age, if you will, of what took place during segments of church history. Mm-hmm. So you can look back on it now, and maybe John at that time, uh, maybe people reading it at that time would not have seen it this way, but it's very clear by now with the perspective of history to look back on it and go, well, of course, this is a time period in which the major characteristic of what was going on in the world is dominated by what you see in these few verses in that particular section. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the age of Pergamus, the word Pergamus means much marriage. So this was the age in which the church married in with the world through Constantine, the emperor of the world, took Christianity, married paganism together, and just brought it all together into one yeah. state where you have now this the state religion and the church and the government being married together mm-hmm. when they're not supposed to, the government's supposed to do what the government does and the church's supposed to do what the church does. Sure. But now you have a domination of world religion called Catholicism that dominated the world through a thousand years called the Dark Ages, still does to this day. Um, but it was married together at that time, and that's what the age of Pergamus signifies and represents for us uh, at that time. And so in our previous uh, time together, our previous podcast, we kind of discussed um, the genesis of that, the, mo- the moment that, that Constantine came into power and how the, you know how he influenced uh, you know, what was happening within the churches, consolidating power, uh, 
shifting power really to Constantinople and to Rome, eventually mm -hmm. mainly just Rome. Yes. Um, and we're seeing all these things happen, but uh, but there's also a story beneath that of theologians, yes. uh, men who were writing, uh, men who had influence. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in your bu book, you devote some time and, and energy to, to discussing who the major players in the age of Pergamos were. Right. And um, and so I want to talk about some of those names today, and I'd mm -hmm. like to start with with Ambrose, okay. if if possible. Could you introduce us to Ambrose and tell us about him a little bit? Ambrose was the imperial governor of the area of Milan, the North Italy, uh, and <clears throat> one of the things that we must understand about the Roman governmental system at that time is that they had an emperor, they had a senate. Um, now, their Senate was not the same as ours. Um, we have a constitutional republic um, with a president and three branches of government and all that. Mm -hmm. This was a, a similar but not similar type of structure, but there were various different offices that were occupied by individuals. So mm -hmm. the emperor was the king of the world. He had a Senate that was meet, that met in Rome that Pass laws and yeah, things dealt like with that. Yeah, the minutia of passing laws, right? And they were representatives of of particular areas. Sure. Yeah. Then you had what were called imperial imperial governors, mm -hmm. which would be like maybe a governor of our state. It put in our context, we could understand it. So they were broken down into several different uh, categories of people reigning or governing over certain areas. And Ambrose was the imperial governor of the area of North Italy. So it's a fairly large. Uh, area and he had a very fairly responsible. So, so he began as position. a politician. Yeah, he was a politician. Okay. He studied law, um, and he was elected or appointed to that particular office and held that office for a good period of time. And so he had no Bible training whatsoever, um, and was a governor. Mm -hmm. okay. So now there was a dispute that took place in Milan at that time because the the bishop had passed away and there was a faction or a two three four different groups of people arguing or fighting as we always do right. <clears throat> over who's going to take the position of the bishop of the of milan italy mm -hmm. uh, which again it's you're not talking about the pastor of a church by this particular point in time we'll use the word bishop um the Bible uses the word bishop to talk about a pastor. Right. This was not a pastor of a local congregation. This was an administrative overseer of various churches. A region of churches. Region of churches yeah. at that time. And by this time, three, the late 300s, early 400s, the churches at this point in time are all com compressed into or combined, if you will, into one conglomeration. They're all, quote, Catholic yeah. for the most part. They're right. Some, the, there's, there's our strain in there, yeah. but the established church is all ritualistic, the fu the formalistic, church, yes. if you will. Yeah, and they're all singing off the same sheet of music. They all just mm -hmm. have the same literature, and they all, uh, all have the same structure behind them. Mm -hmm. But there are governors over them as well. So you have the political side over here with it, that's dealing with the law. And society, then you have the religious side over here that's dealing with the structure of the churches and the government of the churches. Of course, now they're combined together. Um, but anyway, they're they're um, uh, they're they're operating that way. Right. So there's a faction, the the various factions of the um, church there that 
want this guy to be the bishop. No, I want this guy. No, I want this guy. And they're arguing and fighting over this thing. And there's this raucous fight that is taking place. And somebody called Ambrose into the meeting to try to solve or, or settle the the issue. And he got up and gave one of these great big political stirring speeches that you hear all the time mm-hmm. about, you know, that talks for 30 minutes and says nothing. You know, you ever you ever watch one of the political speeches and you're thinking, would you please say something? I yeah. mean, just say something, you right. know. Yeah. And we all together got banded to, you know, be as one and that kind of double speak thing and he got yeah. all the way through that thing trying to urge everybody to unity and to peace and all that other kind of stuff and in the middle of that meeting when it was done uh, when he was done with his great stirring oratory speech a child stood up and yelled out ambrose bishop mm-hmm. and everybody looked at each other and went might as well yeah and he became the bishop of milan not ever having gone to church, not ever having read his Bible, not ever studied, nothing. Right, right. Okay? He became the Bishop of Milan due to his political savvy. Yeah, so and, his was, or, and his oration. And his or, yeah, his oration. Yeah. So it would be, it, it was a very strategic moment, a watershed moment in the history of the church because what you have now is instead of bishops who are supposedly at least trying to study the Bible some and have yeah. some sort of spiritual and thing they're coming in their up life, through the church. Coming up through the church and gaining experience. their positions because of right. their ministerial qualities. Now you have a political man taking this office. Mm-hmm. And so now the offices of bishops and cardinals and archbishops and popes and things like that become political. Mm-hmm. Okay, Whoever is able to to gain this office by his political manipulation is the guy who gets it. Sure. And Ambrose sets that precedent in order. After he became the bishop of Milan, he goes, maybe I might need to read, St- study read some. the Bible a little bit. Yeah. And he began to study theology. He, he, yeah, he works to understand sure. Scripture. Okay. But his now his understanding of Scripture is is couched by – Jerome, Origen, Constantine, Eusebius, brand of Christianity yeah. that is paganism with Christian clothing on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's not really studying the Bible as a Bible as theologian. A, as a faith exercise. No. Right. He's studying the Bible and theology to further his political office of being in charge of this particular region. Mm-hmm. Now he's in charge of this region, not just civilly, but but religiously as well, and it's combined into one office. Yeah, and it's said that, that Ambrose was heavily influenced by Origen. Very much. Who is, you know, we've talked about Origen a little bit, and maybe mm-hmm. you can you can uh, share a little bit more about him, but he was essentially, Origen was the first well-known universalist. Yes. You know, that's yes. how we'd probably describe him today. Yeah, and, and, I, and I like to say it this way. Origin is the origin of our problems. Mm-hmm. And it kind of helps you remember a little sure. bit of that. Um, and Origin was without a question the greatest heretic who ever lived in the history of the human race. Mm-hmm. Uh, this man had no clue whatsoever what the Bible says, uh, and yet he is held up as a great theologian from that particular age. He lived actually a little bit earlier even than Constantine. Mm-hmm. He was dead before Constantine sure. was around. 
Um, <clears throat> Eusebius was actually, in many, I think he was a disciple of Eusebius or, uh, studied Origen's uh, writings, okay. but they are separated by several years between death okay. of Origen and birth of, of, okay. of Eusebius. They never met each other, but Eusebius got his writings and read them and mm -hmm. thought they were just the most awesome thing in the world. Yeah, and he's he's was the most prolific Christian writer by far oh, up to yeah. that point. Up I mean, to that point. Hundreds and hundreds, hundreds of writings that had survived. Writings. Yeah. And, and again, try to put that in historical context. Origen is credited with, some people credit him with over four or 5,000 writings mm -hmm. during his life. He didn't have a laptop. No. He didn't save his documents to a flash drive and go back and edit them. Right. He had, but he had grants from rich leaders yes. in the community who provided him with many, many different people writing and, yes. and transcribing. And He had an army of stenographers who mm -hmm. would sit at his feet and worship him and write down everything he said, and then mm -hmm. it could begin published into books. Right. And I've... Uh, I have some reprints. How do we of get one of those stuff. for you? How do we get some some of those stenographers? Yeah, that's what we need to do. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, you didn't take a lot of editing, <laughs> but um, I, I have some of his reprint things in my in my library. And one of them, his most famous work is two of his most famous works. One of them is called De Principis, which is First Principles. That's his theological statement of faith for lack of a better mm -hmm. term it's fairly thick and i've tried to read it and i cannot read it and it's not that i can't read it um i'm intelligent enough to read it it is in english but i just cannot bring myself i get th i get two or three pages into it and i'm just pulling my hair out going this man is nuts yeah. this man is certifiably insane when it comes to what the Bible actually says, and it's just nothing but endless ramblings mm -hmm. of his perspective of what it is. And then his other famous work is what's called Hexapla, which was a uh, six-column Old Testament where he had the Hebrew Old Testament, column one. Uh, column two was a um, – um, um, or the last column – was a commentary of it, and then the four columns in between were four different Greek translations of mm. that Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, and so those are his famous works. But the man was just certifiably insane. And, and, and a, people recognized that initially, that he was kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, but in time, he became accepted as a major thinker. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because he's so intellectual. So we're talking about a couple, you know, a century or so removed from mm -hmm. that. We have yes. Ambrose, right? Um, and Ambrose is studying his materials and coming up with an origin. Is the the deity of Christ is questioned? Salvation is by works. Um, it's just filled with all sorts of heresy, right? And Ambrose buys into that, and it becomes, of course, Catholicized as well. Mm. So tell us some of the areas in which maybe Ambrose um, missed missed the mark. I mean, what what aspects? Doctrinally, um, would he have um, adopted and brought into brought brought into teaching? Well, he would have brought into teaching the uh, the concept of salvation through the church only. There's an ecclesiastical hierarchical structure that supposedly Jesus had founded through Peter, which is totally false, mm -hmm. and um, that you can only be saved by being a member of that particular church. So your your membership in that church, your baptism as an infant into that church and confers to you your salvation because your parents, when you were eight days old, a counterfeit of 
circumcision brought you to church and mm-hmm. had you baptized. Um, that was one of the main things that that came out of his theology that salvation is only by the church and mm-hmm. salvation is earned by good works that you have to remain in the church and you have to do works of penance and works of alms and go to church and confess your sins to the priest and mm-hmm. all those kind of things. The structure is the is the issue. And that structure is so embedded into Catholicism by this point in time, even by Ambrose, but by now. So it's been it's been generations and centuries of this institutional domination. Mm-hmm. I am Catholic Therefore, right. So maybe for our, for our listeners' sake, for those who are maybe new to this conversation, um, the word Catholic doesn't show up in in the Bible. No. The con the the concept of a universal church does. Yes. Um. Uh, the body of Christ is mm-hmm. the Catholic Church. It's what the word literally means, what universal. Means, yep. But the problem is that in time, by the time we get to this this time frame, by the time we get to what we're referring to as the age of Pergamos, Mm -hmm. believers and theologians and scholars and bishops um, have adopted this idea of not local churches uh, making up or local members, individuals making up the body of Christ, but the concept of and, and the significance of the entire church being unified under one political Yes. spiritual religious entity. Yes, Roman Catholic Church. It is right. a organizational institution that exercises its authority over the world and the churches okay. uh, as as a as an organization, not as a united uh, the a Catholic Church, if we use the word as it's intended to be used to be universal, is an organism of believers spread around the world called the body of Christ. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, that has a head called Jesus Christ. This is a counterfeit of that, where it is a organization controlled by men with a head called the Pope, centered mm-hmm. in Rome. Yeah, and now it's political religious. Yeah, that's good. That's a good description. Yeah. So. Um, now, Ambrose is significant for all yes. the reasons you already stated, but Ambrose is significant in that he had a disciple yes. who is probably um, one of the most prominent figures in uh, in church history. I want to read this quote from Kenneth La Tourette yes. real quick. Um, La Tourette says of, of Augustine of Hippo, mm-hmm. no other Christian after Paul was to have so wide deep and prolonged an influence upon the the Christianity of Western Europe and those forms of the faith that stemmed from it as had Augustine. Right. In other words, um, I mean, according to La Tourette, there's Paul and then there's, and then there's Augustine, which is, is an exceptional thought and and we probably would disagree. Uh, But uh, it does speak to his absolute um, influence in terms of theological thought upon the Western Church during this time frame, so maybe you can tell us about Augustine. Yeah, um, that quote is correct. By the way, he did have a tremendous and still to this day influence over religious thought, but that's not necessarily always biblical. Mm-hmm. And um, just because somebody has influence, I mean, Constantine had influence. Charlemagne had influence. I mean. Sure. Influence is one thing. Right. Being biblical is is a completely different mm-hmm. thought. 
And Augustine Augustine is one of these sort of conflicting characters in history because he's got plenty of writings that are still available today that can be read. And as you read his personal testimony, not his theology, just read his personal testimony of his own um, faith journey, as we call it, because we all have that. Sure. Okay. I mean, I've got a personal testimony also raised in Catholicism. My brother leads me to Christ, and there's that faith journey of all these years that have led me to where I am now, and I'm still on that faith journey. We're all on that. Right. Okay. But there are watershed moments in those faith journeys, like September 4th, 1978, the day my brother put me aside in his living room and showed me what the Bible said, and I trusted Jesus as my Savior. Mm -hmm. That date's fixed in history for me. Right. And it's a watershed moment. Um, Augustine had one of those watershed moments his, himself in his faith journey. Uh, as he was growing up as a young man, he got involved in a sinful lifestyle like a lot of people do. And he was he was his mother was a Christian, his mother was a Christian uh, Catholic, yes. right? And we don't know much about her own personal testimony because right. that's all we know about her. She was a Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, she could have been a Bible-believing Christian. She could have been a Catholic Christian. Mm-hmm. Probably at that time was sort of Catholic. Right. Understand at this point in time, now the Catholic Church tells you that they're the institution that was founded by Jesus upon Peter the Rock in Matthew chapter 16, and they've been in place since that particular point in time, when in reality the Catholic Church really wasn't Catholic until about the time of Augustine and mm-hmm. this point in time. Mm-hmm. It's about 400 A.D. before the Catholic Church becomes the real institution as we right. know it today. Right. So there's that gap of about 400 years. So mm-hmm. if his mother's name was Monica, if she was a Christian, she was of that ilk, um, and she tried to raise her boy to have some kind of relationship with God and some kind of faith, and he rebelled from it. Sure. Uh, as a lot of a lot of people do. Um, so got involved in sinful lifestyle. Um, no need to go into detail of it, but um, he did. And he investigated a branch of Christianity called Manichaeism or Manichaean, uh, however you pronounce yeah, Manichaeism it. Manichaeism. Manichaeism, yeah. how is it pronounced? Yeah. Um, that was, it's hard to identify those branches of Christianity before the Dark Ages because most of their writings are lost. So the only window you have into it is what people tell you about mm-hmm. it. You have the reports of what Manichaeanism believed uh, from their enemies. Mm-hmm. Well, that's going to be twisted. Okay? Right. So he investigated this thing. He couldn't find his peace or his answers or whatever. He's still involved in his sinful lifestyle. And he does have a conversion experience in his testimony of repudiating a a sinful lifestyle and giving his life to the service of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't mention just Christ, but Jesus himself. And and his testimony sounds a little bit like Martin Luther's because he discovers Christ while reading Romans. Yes. Yeah. 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 So there, it's he's a conflicting figure in church history because it's difficult to. To say, I, I don't like to question anybody's salvation. Right. But when it comes to origin, I'll do that in a heartbeat. <laughs> when it comes to Constantine, I could do that in a heartbeat because I've got ample evidence that there's no conversion there. Right. Okay. Um, but with a guy like uh, Augustine, Augustine, it, 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 there's a very good chance 
that this man knew Jesus Christ mm-hmm. as his personal Savior, and then afterward got so messed up in intellectual theology that he took it off to the end, uh, took it off the cliff. Right. And there are a lot of people even in this world today, they know Christ as their Savior, but they're just really messed up. Right. Yeah, scholarship um, impacts the way that we we do things. We become yeah. respecters of, of people and and thought, philosophy yeah. versus uh, believers in God's word. You know, he was he was respected as uh, a th- great thinker even from an early age. Uh-huh. And so when he when he came to a place where um, he was committed to Christianity, and he f- he found Ambrose, and Ambrose mm-hmm. began to disciple him. Right. Um, he begins to to take have to have great influence what kind of influence was augustine's um he began to write a lot of things and in his writings he developed a lot of the um the theology and doctrines of what is bedrock catholicism today um it's not biblical uh but it's he tried to find it in the bible Mm -hmm. infant baptism was one of his um things that he he codified it he made it um acceptable within the church. He made it a doctrine of the church, Mm -hmm. Uh, the doctrine of purgatory for uh, the Catholic Church. And purgatory that is a supposed belief not found in the Bible anywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, that's... But he tried. He tried. Yeah. Okay. Uh, This concept that throughout our lives we will sin, uh, and then we die and we go to a place where our sins are purged. That's where the word purgatory comes from. Mm-hmm. Our sins are purged, like being in hell only short term. Mm-hmm. And once those sins are purged by that fire, then we are promoted out of purgatory into heaven. Right. And he developed that doctrine himself um, and wrote about it and established it as a doctrine. You can call Augustine the theological father of Roman Catholic doctrine and be pretty safe because the core fundamental things, salvation by the church, not by the blood of Jesus Christ, even though he may have had a testimony of that. Mm-hmm. Um, baptism for ch- for infants, once the parents bring that child in, they are conferred into the church. Salvation only through the church. Purga- um, a purgatory works for salvation. Um, uh, penance in the church, confession of mm. sin and penance uh, for um, church members. Right. Uh, those type of things that are core fundamental doctrines of Catholicism today. He's the guy who is most responsible for um, for writing those things and making them official and formal doctrine. And, and making them plain. Yeah. Um, he, he was opposed in his personal life. He didn't enjoy reading the Latin Bible. Right. He thought it was cumbersome and he thought it was... Uh, to upper class, uh, mm-hmm. to elite, and so one of the things he wanted to do is he wanted to make his faith simple sure. and plain to, to to other people. And um, two major, major, major writings. Obviously, he wrote a lot. Mm-hmm. The City of God, yes, which is probably his most famous, and right. then Confessions, the, the Confessions mm-hmm. of, of Augustine of Hippo. Uh, those books are really influential. Can you tell us about what's contained in those books? The Confessions is basically his personal testimony. Mm-hmm. And that's the side of, uh, of, of Augustine that, that lends credence to the fact that this man at least had some sort of understanding of an individual personal relationship with God. Uh, and it, it, again, it's difficult to, to understand um, how, that, how he got so far messed up. Right. But it happens. Um, the book, The City of God, is essentially the thesis is that the promises in the Old Testament that were given to Israel uh, 
were done away with, and now they are to be spiritualized. Mm -hmm. That God promised Abraham a place on this earth that his children would reign over and that they would control and and be the king nation of the earth eventually when the kingdom would come. Augustine was post-millennial. He believed Mm -hmm. that we would clean the world up and make it good for Jesus through the established religion of the Catholic Church. And once it was established for for good, then Jesus would return. And he actually prophesied that Jesus would return in 1000 AD after the millennial um, establishment of Catholicism. Right. So in his (laughs) mind, he believed that the first millennia of the the church Mm – represents the thousand-year reign. Yes, yeah. and that Jesus would come back at the end of that. Right. Well, we get to 1000 AD, we're in the depths of the Dark Ages and the worst time this world has seen in the last, yeah. you know, in almost ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Crusades and the paganism and the filth and the debauchery. That's, that's another episode. We'll get there. Incredible. In time, you and yes, I will sit we'll down get and we'll there. have a conversation on that. But he prophesied and he believed that, mm-hmm. that Jesus was coming back. And through the structure of the church, and here's where we have now Christendom, the kingdom yeah. of um, Constantine's kingdom of domination of the world politically and then bring it in religiously. And now the church dominates the world and it's a Christian theocratic yeah. kingdom. Yeah, a papal theocracy. Papal theocracy. Yeah. Yeah. He paves the way for all of that and establishes the doctrine of that in writing with a lot of his things. Yeah. And the city of God is is that thesis. All of those promises that were given to the nation of Israel were done away because they rejected Jesus Christ and crucified him. Therefore, that was taken from them, given to the church, and now the church gets all those same promises, and Rome replaces Jerusalem as the capital of God's kingdom. And that's obviously incredibly problematic to our theology. We we refer to that as supersessionism when when the church replaces or replacement theology Mm -hmm. when the the church replaces Israel, um, and that doctrinal perspective, we would relate that to being a, a kingdom of heaven perspective yes. when we ought to have a kingdom of God, a spiritual perspective. So they're exactly. they're they're tr- taking kind of an Old Testament Jewish approach uh, to to their their Christianity, mm-hmm. and uh, it eventually uh, leads to justification of the Crusades. That kind of thinking says, well, if if we can't spread the message of Christianity uh, from with the Bible and with mm-hmm. our voices and with kindness and gentleness. Well, then mm-hmm. we'll have to do it by force, right? Right. So it lends itself to that. But also, the replacement theology uh, has had a, a, an incredible impact on the Reformed Church, mm-hmm. and um, as as well as some of the things that that he wrote as it concerns free will. Yes that eventually influenced Calvin and really a lot of what we have today, what we call Calvinism is just Augustinian theology. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It dressed up and, and, and codified by Calvin and and taken to another level that Mm -hmm. John Calvin did. So yeah, Augustine and, and that type of theology and mindset gives now this ecclesiastical organization, the right to, um, persecute and kill dissenters. We will convert the world to Jesus Christ by any means whatsoever. They say Jesus Christ. We'll convert the world to our church by any means whatsoever, including killing people if we have to do that. Yeah. He didn't advocate for that necessarily, but. It, no, he but didn't. But in, that's, in what, time, that's what spun from it. That was implied. 
Yeah, because those promises to the nation of Israel are ours now, and there's some of that in Israel's yeah, we history. Need pro- we need the promised land. Yes. In fact. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so that, so that, that's where it becomes from. And then he starts developing the concept of the no free will concept. Uh, and he, he, he's one of the early guys. This has been around forever, this thing we call Calvinism that mm-hmm. um, basically in a nutshell says that man has no free will, that God has chosen in eternity past who is going to be saved and who is going to be lost. Mm-hmm. And um, those who are Calvinists would argue with me about my simplification yeah, of it. Yeah, they'd say it, that's – but there's varying different perspectives. Exactly. In, at the end of the day – they believe in the total depravity of, of man. Yes. In other words, man cannot, of their own free will, accept Jesus Christ as their Lord right. and Savior. They need something to, to regenerate them before they can make a faith decision. Right. And so ultimately they believe that you don't have the free will to do that. That's imposed upon you before the foundation of the world. Right. That would be a general, over-generalization of, right. of that. But, but even with, with Augustine, those ideas that came from his pen mm-hmm. uh, that so many... Uh, people in the Reformed Church look to as kind of the, the beginning place of their theological position uh, were really just connected to his his earlier experiences in Manichaeism, right. which was riddled with Gnostic thought, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Yeah, and so he has that experience where a, a conversion-type experience, um, and he believes that God had chosen him for that. Mm-hmm. And if God chose for us in eternity past who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost, then that becomes institutional mm-hmm. um, through this organization. And that's he starts writing about those kind of things. So he's the, again, the theology of Calvinism or eternal election has been around a lot longer even than, than Augustine. But He's the guy that kind of starts formalizing the writing of it so that it mm-hmm. becomes something you can read and, and pick up and becomes a document you can start working right. off of. Right. And then when John Calvin comes along, and, and there's others bef- in between them because Augustine is 400 and Calvin is 1,500, right. a thousand years between right. them. Uh, but when John Calvin comes along, he takes that thought process and that mindset and puts it on steroids and – that's why we call it Calvinism today, because he's the most famous yeah. of the people who promoted that type of theology. But it came from Augustine. And, and I, I want to talk about Jerome, too. But before, yes. I don't want to leave the, the listeners um, you know, sus- suspended on this topic. If people want to learn more about Calvinism, um, maybe you have some book recommendations. They can learn more about it. Um, you know, uh, I, I really highly recommend uh Lawrence Vance's writing yes. on Calvinism. I feel like it's a very, very thorough mm-hmm. investigation of the history and the theology. And then his refutation is is really fair. Uh, he uses the Bible to 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 make a platform. But yeah. I think he's very fair in his argument. Um, I don't know if there's any other books that you would. None recommend. that I know of off the top of my head at yeah. this point in time. But it's it's again it's the it, it it's just the common sense concept of knowing that. Though we are depraved as sinners, the part of our uh, nature that is not depraved is our will. Mm-hmm. And so I have no ability whatsoever to save myself, but I sure do have the ability to stick my hand in the air and say, Lord, save me. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, and uh, in fact, I'm I'm really hoping to get an, an episode with, with somebody on Calvinism at some point. Yes. But that's a, that's a side note. So let's talk uh, briefly about Jerome and his influence, okay. and uh, tell us about who he is and where he came from and, and what impact he had during this this time frame. He's around the same time as Augustine as well, both around 400 or so A.D. And he was a monk who um, that was one of the other unintended consequences of mm. Constantine's takeover of the right. world. We haven't talked about monastic lifestyle no, much we haven't. yet. But one of the unintended consequences of that, when Constantine took over the world uh, and, became, and made the world Christian, well, you still have the big bad world out here uh, that's pretty ugly. Mm-hmm. And you got a lot of Christians that don't want to go along with that, and so they cloistered themselves and sheltered themselves and got away, separated, withdrew from the world and become monks and got into the monastery movement. There were some good things that happened out of it, but by and large, it was a— Yeah, there's no mandate for that in Scripture. Isolate yourself from the world. Yes. That's not the mission. No, no, no. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Right. Okay? And it doesn't say go hole up someplace and wait for me to come. Right. And uh, by and large, it is a— is a bad movement. So the monks are into self-penance. They think they need to work themselves into a relationship with God. Uh, they're earning it by um, self-inflicted torture in, mm-hmm. you know, deny my flesh. Therefore, I'm going to get to heaven because I don't sin as much because I've denied myself. Right. Yeah, self-harm was huge in the monastic oh, life. Gosh. Yeah. Just... I had this evil thought, and so now I'm going to lash myself. And, and this type mm-hmm. of activity, um, there were monks that sat on poles oh, for gosh. long periods of times. Some of it is bizarre. It's very, very bizarre. But it's it's basically self-torture mm-hmm. with the belief that um, it's really almost the stoic belief that uh, the pain and suffering is actually preferable spiritually. Yes, you know? and I'm, I'm now deserving my punishment and I'm paying for my own punishment myself so that I don't have to pay for it in hell. Christ already took the harm for us on the right. cross of Calvary. Right. And so that monasticism uh, is a perverted thought of that where it says that if I inflict punishment upon myself, then I am paying for my own sins, therefore I, now, and I don't have to pay for them in, mm-hmm. later in eternity. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Christ already paid it, Jesus sure. paid it all, all to him I owe, right? So tell us about Jerome so, specifically. What was yeah, his influence? So he was a monk, uh, and he got into that monastic lifestyle to try to withdraw himself from his own sinful lifestyle. His own sinful lifestyle revolved around, as it does with most young men, mm-hmm. the ladies. Yeah, okay? sure. Which is Augustine's problem, too. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. And a lot of these guys' problems. Mm-hmm. And Jerome had that problem. He had a obsession with with it to the point where he said, if I just get completely away from the world and cloister myself in this cell somewhere and never see another woman again, then I will be delivered from this bondage where you can't you go to a cave and you take yourself with you. You take your biggest problem with right. you wherever you go, and that's you. Mm-hmm. And so he tried to do that to get an obsession cleanse from his life of his sex drive and it didn't work obviously mm-hmm. um so he had he studied origin mm-hmm. uh, thought he was the greatest teacher ever in the history of the human race um he said this one time which is just the most bizarre thing in the whole world having been washed by christ there's no need to wash again which means that for the last 30 years of his life he never took a bath 
Now, how'd you like to get on the public transportation next to a guy like that? Interesting. Interesting guy. Yeah. Okay. So he was obsessed. Well, that's the allegorizing that. of scripture. The exactly. same way origin promoted. Yeah. Yeah. And and that self mutilation thing, that self denial, um, thinking that that's purging himself from his sin, but it doesn't. So his contribution to the church is what is called the Latin Vulgate Bible. And what he did was he took the writings of Origen uh, and and his hexapla, his Old Testament commentary, commentary, his Origen's New Testament work that he did a lot of commenting on the Bible as well. Um, Maybe perhaps need to back up just a hair from that as well. Because, go back to Constantine for a minute, at the end of the Council of Nicaea in 325, uh, Constantine ordered 50 Bibles from Eusebius, Mm -hmm. placed the order. Now, we don't know if that order was ever filled, but we do know the order was placed because the actual letter that Constantine wrote to Eusebius requesting 50 copies of the Bible is preserved for us to this day in the London Museum of Antiquity Mm. in London, okay, the British Museum of Antiquity. So the letters there, we know that Constantine ordered the Bibles. Well, Eusebius is going to try to produce them. And Eusebius, being a devoted follower of Origen, is going to produce them from the library of Origen, which are corrupt manuscripts. Those are the manuscripts that underlie a lot of the new versions of the Bible, Sinaiticus Vaticanus. Jerome picked up a lot of those kind of picked up on those documents as well because Eusebius is, you know, a few years, a generation or so before Jerome, took some of that document plus Origen's writing and produced the Latin Bible that became the standard for the Catholic Church. Yeah, the one that Augustine didn't like to read very much. Right. Right. It was very highly um, educated language, intellectual. Uh, The world at that time, Latin was not the common language. Greek was. Um, Only the people who went to school could learn Latin. Yeah, it was elitism at its finest. Very elitism. Yeah. And so that became the standard of the Catholic Church for forever. And he was commissioned by one of the popes to do it, finished it in 405, and that become the official Bible of, of Catholicism. Mm-hmm. But it's laced with just incredible perversions and errors from Origen's thought, from his work in the Bible, and from Jerome's own obsession himself and his own quirkiness. Yeah. So Jerome produces a Bible that is, a again, just a kind of a conglomeration of all of his his favorite um, heretical theologians, yes. and then and then uses this Bible. Now it becomes it becomes popular fairly, fairly quickly, doesn't it? I mean, tell well, us about popular in this regard that it became the official Bible of the Catholic Church. However, Catholics were forbidden to read it. Mm. Um, and st- not to this day. I mean, they've loosened that regulation. There's but a cult- for- culturally, it was unacceptable for anyone besides a, a priest or a bishop. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, you're too stupid to understand what the Bible says. As a matter of fact, if you read the Bible, you're going to depart from the Catholic faith. So if you want to know what the Bible says, you come to us and we'll tell you what it says mm-hmm. because we have studied Latin in school, and you have it. You're a peon. That mindset is foisted upon the church through Augustine, through Jerome, and Origen specifically, and all of what came out of that area of establishing 
this Bible as the standard of the Catholic Church. However, you can't read it because you don't understand it. It's mm-hmm. too deep. It's too mystical. It's too right. spiritual. We will tell you what it says. Right. So, you know, with all of that, um, yeah. maybe just summarize the influence of these guys and then any names that maybe we've missed that, that we could that our listeners could go do their own research on. Who, who, are, who are the major players and what was the ultimate impact that they had on the age of Pergamoso as a whole? Okay. Well, again, now the major players, and go back to one of the things we talked about in last episode or uh, of if you're going to play a game, um, you better know who the key players you're playing against are mm-hmm. and keep an eye on them. Um, you know, if you're if, if you're playing football now, you're, you better know who Patrick Mahomes is yeah. and you better game plan for around him that. Yeah. around that. Sure. Okay. Your second string starting guard, you don't need to worry right. too much about him. Right. Okay. Uh, your main key players in church history on the other side are Origen. You need to know who that man is and what he did. Uh, Eusebius, his role as the bridge between Origen and Constantine, as the bishop of Caesarea and his study of Origen and his producing of these manuscripts that we now have called Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. You need to know who Constantine is. Beyond it, it, of this age, if that's that's the Michael Jordan of this age. You better mm-hmm. know who he is mm-hmm. and what his contribution was. Jerome, you better know who he was and what he produced in that Latin Vulgate Bible that plunged the world into darkness because you can't get the thy word is a lamp into my feet right. and a light into my path. The entrance of thy words giveth light. And we get our light and our understanding of God through his word. And now the the, the populace is told that they can't read the Bible under penalty of death. And even if they wanted to, they can't because they haven't been to school to to, right. to learn the Latin to right. read it. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, you need to know who you need to know who Augustine and Ambrose are, and how Ambrose consolidated the political and religious offices into one, and how Augustine, um, though he may have had a conversion testimony and may be in heaven tonight, is still looking back on, oh, man, what a mess I made out of my life if I did, okay, mm-hmm. uh, who developed the theology of what Roman Catholicism is. And then you have the establishment of the hierarchy and the structure itself. Pope Sylvester that was appointed by um, Constantine, Pope Damasus who commissioned Jerome to um, – to publish the Bible, Pope Gelasius, who who said that uh, all who developed the concept that the whole world was subject unto Rome, including political leaders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you really wanted to get to the the guy who made Catholicism the established structure that it is right now, it's Pope Gregory the First in about mm-hmm. six hundred, and he took most of Augustine's writings and made them official Catholic doctrine before they were just in Augustine's books. Mm-hmm. Now these are official council theological Catholic doctrine of purgatory and the mass and the Eucharist and the uh, and all of the different things mm-hmm. that are that are there in, th- in Catholicism. So those are some of the key players. Well, uh, it's all these conversations with you are yeah. always really fascinating. Pastor Greg, it's always 
it's always an education to sit and talk with you like right, well, this. this is my one of, this is my favorite subject so. yeah yeah well we can outside tell. the bible itself right well we're glad that you joined us as as well we're thankful uh for the time you spent with us and hopefully uh you became more curious about church history and uh, you're interested uh, by some of the things that we talked about, I highly recommend you going and picking up uh, Greg's book on church history. It's called Church History. Uh, you can search for it on Amazon. It'll pop right up um, under Greg Axe. Like, make sure you include his name there. Uh, but uh, we want to invite you to, to check that out. Also, check out uh, our classes and our course load at LFBI, uh, where we teach things like this and, and many, many other things. So visit LFBI.org and learn more about our Bible school. We want to thank you again, and we ask that you join us again next week. My name is Brian Bustos, and I am a Living Faith Bible Institute student. And I'm also a husband. And I'm also a father. In this stage in my life, things are definitely chaotic. I've been called by God to serve in my local church here in Kansas City. And in any given week, that may look like leading worship, or preparing for a Bible study, or even teaching a class. And this is where Living Faith Bible Institute is so important to my life. First, it gives me focus, but two, it's flexible. And so if I can't make that Saturday morning class, I can still catch it online, whether it's remotely or even sometime later in the week, like during my lunch break. I guess in essence, I don't have to put my life on pause. Enroll for classes at lfbi.org. If you are interested in donating to LFBI to support future pastors and leaders, please visit lfbi.org slash donate.